Welcome nerds. It's time to debrief you on the world of pop 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 culture. Error. 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 System detects time stream error. Horrific error. anomaly detected. Must reset time stream to continue hero adventure. Error. Horror month protocols now active. Horror across the decades detected. Welcome nerds to the darkest timeline. Welcome to Horror Month. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, Christian, it's that time of year again. Welcome to our fifth annual Horror Month. So this year we decided to do things a little different. Uh, we are going to be counting down our favorite horror films in each of the past five decades. So we're starting this week with the 1970s and we'll end on Halloween with the 2010s. But if you're not a horror fan, don't worry. Check the timestamps because we're still doing all of our normal, regular, scheduled segments. Speaking of which, on this week's podcast, we're going to be breaking down Episode 4 of Andor and Episode 7 of She-Hulk. And we also have a film review for the Munsters. Plus, we're talking Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, and AEW. All right, before we get started today, it's time to announce the winner for our MCU Blu-ray giveaway. So without further ado, Christian, drum roll, please. The winner of their choice of either Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness or Thor, Love and Thunder on Blu-ray is none other than Roxas 07, a.k.a. Black Sail 77. Black Sails, go ahead and DM us your address and your choice of Blu-ray and it will be on its way shortly. And remember, just because the giveaway's over, please continue to support the show. Uh, make sure you leave a five-star review and you know what? Tell a friend. Exactly. It helps us grow when you spread the word of the Amazing Nerd Show. Let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning potential spoilers for upcoming films and shows ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, up first, we got huge Deadpool 3 news. In a video released by Ryan Reynolds and company, we get the official release date for Deadpool 3, which will be September 6th, 2024. But more excitingly, they revealed that Hugh Jackman would be returning as Wolverine as Ryan asked Hugh as he walked in the background if he would do it. Besides that, right now we do know that um, Sean Levy is set to direct. Um, he was the director of The Adam Project and Free Guy, which are both projects that Ryan Reynolds has been a part of, as well as Bob Berger's writers Wendy and Lizzie Monolu plus um, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick from Deadpool 2 are still part of the writing team behind Deadpool and now Wolverine's first MCU appearances, which if Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is in the MCU, does that make Fox's X-Men the first MCU films if you're trying to watch everything in chronological order? Well, it, I mean, it definitely opens up a huge can of worms, right? Uh, this is awesome news. Uh, but I feel like we're all going to be really like speculating exactly what this means for the mutants in the MCU until, you know, this film actually comes out. Now, I don't know if you remember, but before they announced Secret Wars, you know, I, God, this was probably a year ago. We could kind of see like what road they were probably traveling down that these upcoming phases would probably lead to like an event film like Secret Wars and most likely Hickman's version of Secret Wars. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to be pretty much confirmed right now with them including incursions. Um, 
So Hickman's Secret Wars is a multiverse affair, right? So with that being said, maybe Deadpool 3 is going to be taking place inside of the Fox universe. And then during the film or, you know, at the end of the film, we have some kind of incursion scenario happen. And that brings, you know, Fox's, you know, mutants to the MCU for Secret Wars. Yeah, I feel for Secret Wars, that's definitely possible. I wouldn't say that's like, I, I don't want anyone to get confused and think, oh, that's how they're going to bring in mutants. No, but yes, no, for Secret Wars, yes. Absolutely not. But it's kind of a way to like have your cake and eat it too, right? Mm -hmm. You can have Hugh Jackman and Deadpool part of that big event, right, film. And then, you know, something happens where they set, you know, the multiverse right again. Everything kind of goes back to normal, but like maybe Deadpool sticks around. And then, you know, we get introduced to the MCU's version of the X-Men like proper, you know, and yes. they can recast all those roles. Because while I love Hugh Jackman, it'll be cool to see him play in Wolverine again. I just can't fathom him being the MCU's version of Wolverine, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, just age-wise alone, right? Um, I have a feeling that Foggy is going to want to cast a younger actor in that role, um, you know, once all this, like, multiverse craziness is, you know, over with. But, I mean, this is kind of a fun way to give, like, a nod and wink and honor that character and, you know, all the awesome work that Hugh Jackman has done over the past decades, you know, really getting this superhero genre jump started. Yeah, I have to agree. They're probably going to go with someone younger just because I imagine even the role of Wolverine alone is like a multi-year, you know, deal. You know, it has to be like several different films. Yes, yes. And, you know, Wolverine's not really supposed to age. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I know they have, you know, awesome de-aging CGI at this point, but that shit gets expensive. But since we're dealing with, like, elements like the multiverse and Secret Wars as our big event film, like, it really opens the door to, like, so many different possibilities and having fun appearances uh, like we did with uh, Doctor Strange's Multiverse of Madness, right? Where we had Patrick Stewart show up playing Charles Xavier again. Hey, they could bring him back for Secret Wars and kill him all over again, right? <laughs> I don't think I could handle that again. <laughs> I mean, the one thing's for sure, I doubt we're going to be getting any answers anytime soon. Uh, but I, I'm going to say, like, Deadpool 3 is definitely, like, up on my most, like, anticipated, like, MCU film list now. MCU just keeps giving me reasons to stick around, you know? <laughs> anyway, moving on, uh, we've got a rumor about Harrison Ford possibly joining the MCU. Thanks to industry insider Jeff Snyder, a rumor is going around that Harrison Ford could be joining the MCU as the new Thaddeus Ross. Formerly played by the now deceased William Hurt, Thaddeus Ross could appear in Marvel's Thunderbolts film, but it's unclear if Harrison would be playing the role as some Marvel insiders have denied Harrison's involvement. But Snyder continued to claim that Ford was at least their top choice for the role. Yeah, and there was also a rumor that they were actually going to make the announcement at D23, but Kathleen Kennedy put a stop to it because she didn't want it to steal any of the attention away from the upcoming Indiana Jones film. What? I don't know, man. <laughs> now, in all fairness, I think I would actually be more excited about the idea of Harrison Ford in the MCU than, like, what, a fifth Indiana Jones film at this point? So Yeah, but... 
But with that being said, too, like, not to be morbid, but, like, we just lost the original actor who played Thunderbolt Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, William Hurt, rest in peace. Harrison Ford's 80 years old. Like, aren't we, aren't we playing with fire here? Like, yeah. I mean, knock on wood, that's not the case. <laughs> but uh-huh. it's like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does feel like, I don't know. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it would definitely be cool to see him in the role. And I, I do feel like it's good casting. Um, and it'd be awesome to see him in the MCU. But it just feels like maybe they don't have like long-term plans for Ross then. Um, not Once again, not to sound morbid. Uh, but I mean, maybe this will be his transformation into Red Hulk. And then you don't have to really deal with the human side of the character. I guess, yeah, if they decide to never have, like, you know, if they skip, you know, anything with Red Hulk being able to transform back and forth at yeah. all, you know. And they just have that. I don't know. I don't know. It just, it, it feels like a weird choice. But, I mean, maybe Harrison Ford's a fucking vampire. Who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did drink from the Holy Grail in Last Crusade, so... <laughs> Who knows? Uh, he chose correctly, yes. Also, the dude still has a pilot license, and he's flying. <laughs> he does not give a shit. That's a, which is another reason why you might want to pick. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Actor. This is a horrible conversation. Like, we, I know, we don't but... want anything to happen to Harrison Ford, to make that clear. I'm just saying I, too, was surprised by the like the possible casting. Like, I definitely thought they would go with someone younger. It does kind of verify, though, like all the little clues and breadcrumbs that they've been dropping, um, you know, with Thunderbolts and, you know, She-Hulk. That, yes. you know, that Ross is going to be playing a bigger role in the MCU sometime in the near future. I mean, it only makes sense. I mean, he did lead a version of the Thunderbolts at some point uh, in the comics. And I mean, it'll be awesome to see, you know, Red Hulk on screen. So I'm looking forward to that. I mean, who knows? With AI now, maybe they just have enough of his voice that they can just reuse Harrison Ford's voice for the rest of the time for Thunderbolt well, Ross. I mean, Bruce Willis just sold his likeness to some like deep fake company, so I, I guess that means they could license him out, like even after like he's passed to you know movie studios and stuff to use. So that's I crazy. Mean, yeah, right. <laughs> It's been a debate for a while if actors would allow this or should do this, but, you know. I mean, if he signs off on it, you know, while mm-hmm. he's still alive, I, I don't know. It is a little weird, though, I agree. Like, are you going to watch Die Hard 22 in, like, f- like 10 years, uh, you know? Possibly. I mean, with the way technology is <laughs> going, I mean, now we've uh-huh. got apps on our phone that can pull that shit off. So, I think the only time I would have, I don't know, issues with it is when the actor wasn't involved in the decision, mm-hmm. you know, to license out their likeness, um, you know, for that deep fake technology. Like I even get a little weird out when I find out that like the families of dead relatives are like making holographic, you know, performers and stuff like that. And like still releasing music, even though, you know, the artist is no longer around. So I don't yeah, know. Right. Like isn't Tupac still like releasing music to this uh-huh. day, <laughs> like 20 some years later? So, yeah, it, it is a little weird. So, but, but who knows? I mean, maybe those artists would be taking solace and knowing that they're still, you know, helping and supporting their families, you know, after, you know, death even. 
Yeah, Thunderbolts comes out July 26th, 2024. Well, speaking of the living dead, Blade director Bassam Tarek departs the film. It seems due to scheduling conflicts that uh, Bassam Tarek is out as director of MCU's upcoming Blade film. As THR reports, Tarek will remain as an executive producer on the project, but Marvel is already on the search for their next director of this film, which is set for a November 3rd, 2023 release. And weren't they just like a month away from like principal photography? Yeah, it was supposed to happen next month. Huh. I have a bad feeling Blade's going to get delayed because that's oh, absolutely. That's a little over a year away. Um, yeah, now I, I hopefully that doesn't cause like a domino effect with, you know, the MCU's, uh, you know, premiere schedule, though. So, I mean, that's kind of the price you pay when all your films are connected, though. It could mm -hmm. cause this weird like ripple effect where you end up having to kind of like shuffle things. But I mean, hopefully I'm wrong and they'll be fine and they're able to make that release date. Uh, who would you like to see, Christian, uh, take over the big chair and direct Blade? Uh, depending on the tone of the film, I could see John Krasinski doing a really good, like, dark Blade film. He's got experience in horror, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he's an extremely talented director. Along those lines, I, I mean, I wouldn't mind them, like, you know, actually, you know, grabbing a director with horror experience. Like, maybe someone like Jordan Peele. I think he's come out and said that he only wants to kind of direct like his own original material at this point. But I mean, it's played, right? <laughs> it's hard to pass up. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, I know he's, you know, working on the other side of the fence right now, but James Wan would also be fantastic. And I'd have to believe he'd, he'd have an awesome take on that story. Or you know what? I mean, what about Del Toro? Del Toro did the sequel to Blade back in the day. I think yeah. it'd be great to bring him back in the fold with the MCU. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoyed the sequel to Blade, so why not? Also, if they want to go balls to wall, I mean, they could just do Robert Rodriguez. Just have fun with it. I mean, hey, he's got experience <laughs> with vampire flicks. He directed Dust Till Dawn, so... I mean, it makes sense to me. I wouldn't be surprised if Feige's just trying to keep things on schedule, though. He just puts in a puppet director and does it himself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's been rumors about that happening, you know, uh -huh. for years. So. <laughs> well, up next, man, we got a lot of Marvel news. Uh, it seems like the MCU's making some major changes to the upcoming Armor Wars. Hollywood Reporter claims that Armor Wars is coming to the big screen instead of just a Disney Plus release, after studio sources revealed they wanted to tell the story the right way, I say in quotations, you know, you know whatever that actually means to them. THR also states that um, this will probably change when this film will be released, as it will most likely be pushed back further on the development cycle over there at Marvel. But we will see Rhodey pretty soon in Secret Invasion next year. See, that also has me concerned that maybe Secret Invasion will end up getting pushback since since Armor Wars was supposed to be taking place in the aftermath of that series. So, like, I mean, are they concerned about there being too much of a gap between, you know, the series and the film, especially if Armor Wars gets pushed back on the schedule? Well, Black Widow was still successful in its own way. I, I feel like that can still work, you know, because Black Widow had that. It was completely further back than what we'd gotten with the Avengers at that time. So you're saying that the film would be actually a flashback? I, if it comes out too late, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Like, I felt like that kind of hurt Black Widow in the long run. I mean, I'm glad they're making the change. 
uh like if they feel like you know the material is better serviced as a film then hell do it um i could also see it being like a budgetary thing because you got to figure i mean that's got to be a really effects heavy show mm-hmm. with lots of cgi since we're dealing with like you know tony stark's like you know creations like all of his different armor getting out there you know on the black market so i mean you would hope to do the story right that you'd be seeing a lot of different like you know suits in action um and maybe that's just too much of a budget for you know one of these disney plus shows so maybe that makes more sense for it to be like a film i mean lately like one of the big criticisms of like you know the disney plus series is the CGI hasn't always been up to snuff compared to the MCU films. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, I, I could see, you know, that storyline working so well as a series. You know, you get like a new villain who has Tony Stark tech that he has to go find out, you know, each episode. It's just, it sounded like an exciting idea. Uh, it, it still will work as a film. I'm still interested in whatever they're doing with Rhodey. I just I expected it to be a series, I guess. All right, lastly, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Saslav claims we're not for sale. Deadline states that in a recent Zoom call held by Warner Brothers Discovery, that CEO David Zaslav made it clear, we are not for sale, absolutely not for sale. Uh, This comes after rumors of NBC potentially purchasing Warner Discovery. Zaslav reportedly um, acknowledged that they're going through some hard times right now, but they still believe they have everything that they need to be successful. I mean, here's the thing, like he's not gonna admit that they're for sale. Especially they're trying to court someone to like head up, you know, their DC division, you know, AKA their, you know, very own Kevin Foggy. I mean, I hope he's being honest uh, because it, it definitely seems like it's been a struggle to find someone to fill that role. Uh, and I'm sure like news of a possible like rumored sale is not going to help things at all. I mean, no one wants to be on a potentially sinking ship, right? Yeah, because there's the potential of being like a lame duck, you know, type of situation where you don't really have any power or say. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. Because once, you know, that that sale is finalized, you got to figure like NBC Universal is going to want to put in their own people. I mean, we've exactly. seen it time and time again. Just be firings all over again for them. I, I just, I don't know. My best of my best of wishes, you know with whatever they're doing. All right, Christian, it's time to travel to everyone's favorite galaxy far, far away. Let's talk some Andor. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Star Wars Andor ahead. You have been warned. If you can't deliver, I need to know. Do you think I'm not trying? I never think that. But I need to start planning if you're no longer coming through for us. The money's there. It's just getting very dangerous to move it around. I can't pull funds the way I used to. They're watching me now. Uh, They're watching everyone. This is different. They're everywhere. There's a new spy every day at the Senate. I visit the bank. They're all new faces. You got a new driver. (sighs) I feel under siege. Episode 4 of Andor starts on the ship they escaped on from last week, which seems to be this kind of hacked Imperial ship which brings Andor more questions than answers as he tries to get down to the bottom of who Luthen is, and who he is working for. Luthen continues to turn the conversation back onto Andor throughout this opening scene while explaining how he knows Andor in a way. During this exchange, we learned that Andor had fought on Minbin, which was a planet under siege when we saw it during Solo A Star Wars Story. 
So I thought this was a good character building moment. I'm glad that Cassian didn't just like trust Luthen right off the bat. Um, even though, like, you know, they both escaped together and he kind of like saved, you know, Cassian's ass. Um, it just really goes a long way to show like, you know, that Cassian, you know, not only has a lot of street smarts, but probably doesn't trust many people. Um, the whole Mimbin thing that, that came out of left field, I wasn't expecting that. And I feel like timeline wise, that means he probably would have served with uh, Solo, right? Uh, but I, I did love that Luthen then called out his bullshit, uh, you know, saying that he knows that he was a cook and that, you know, he ran away after six months. So, I mean, Luthen seems to know a lot about Cassin. So I have a feeling that he's been scouting him from for quite Most a while. Because it probably takes Luthen a lot to trust people on his own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially because, I mean, later on in this episode, as we see, like, he definitely has some big plans for Cassian. Either way, Luthen pushes for Andor to actually work for him, offering 200,000 to complete the job of stealing the quarterly payroll of an entire Imperial sector. We then make our way to Coruscant, where we find a security council going over what's going on in this Imperial-controlled world. During this, Major Partigas makes it clear that their duties are basically to kind of find and solve problems with evidence before they ever actually become a major one. The Major is then debriefed on the events of Ferrix from last week's episode, which catches the attention of a new character, Dedra Miro. Yeah, she seemed extremely concerned about, uh, this device being out there. Luthen and Andor land on Aldani where Luthen has Andor change his name. Andor picks the name Clem, which was Marva's partner's name in the flashbacks we saw from last week's episode. On top of that, Luthen gives Andor a blue kyber crystal as a down payment. Luthen claims it was a sky stone in celebration of the Rakatan uprising, which is a surprising reference to the old Republic game, in which in that lore was kind of the predecessor to the Galactic Republic that was formed after the Rakatan Empire Civil War. Yeah, that's a species that enslaves uh, force-sensitive beings, right? Yeah. And they also actually invented hyperspace Ooh. travel. I don't think any of that's going to come to play, though. No. <laughs> so with Cassian choosing the name Clem, you got to think that, like, Marva and Clem were probably more than just, like, work buddies, right? <laughs> so maybe like Clem actually like helped raise Cassian and perhaps that's who Luthen's referring to uh, when he talks about uh, his father, Cassian's father being hung in the middle of the street, right? Mm, yeah. Unless Luthen's been scouting Cassian since he was like a young boy, which would be kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a little odd. <laughs> <laughs> Grooming for terrorism at that point. Uh -huh. <laughs> Outside the ship, Luthen meets with Vel Sartha. She's pretty pissed though by Luthen forcing Andor on her as not only will she be trusting basically a mercenary with her life, but she will have to lie to her comrades so that they don't question her leadership entirely, making it seem like Clem was always a part of the plan. Either way, their mission is dangerous and the more help she can get is probably better. So she really doesn't so she really doesn't have a choice to refuse here and begrudgingly takes in Andor. I mean, I don't blame her. Like, Luthen's being really trustworthy with Cassian, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like, trusting him, like, on this huge mission that he's been, like, planning for this entire time and these people have been, like, sacrificing so much for. Um, I don't know. I mean, he must really believe in Cassian at this point. 
Well, meanwhile, on the ship, he's looking at the controls to possibly yes. fly away, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Once again, I feel like it's going to be revealed that Luthen knows Marva somehow. Mm -hmm. Like, and she's the one who's been, like, you know, vouching for him. One of the members of the Security Council, Lieutenant Supervisor Belvin, makes a trip to Morlana 1, where he essentially fires everyone in command and claims that the Empire will be taking full control, especially after Karn's blunder on apprehending Andor. Later on, we see Karn looking still as shocked as the day Andor escaped, returning home to his mother on the lower levels of Coruscant, where his mother proceeds to slap him, but also welcomes him in. Seems like a healthy relationship. Christian, have you ever watched Boardwalk Empire? I have not. I've seen so, like stuff of it. Though. So Karn totally reminds me of Michael Shannon's character on that show, who I believe starts off as mm. an FBI agent and then eventually becomes so obsessed with trying to like bring down the main character that he ends up becoming like, you know, what he's hunting. Um, I don't know. So like I, I could see it like going one or two ways with Karn, like you know, either he's going to become a maniac and just become obsessed with Cassian, or I could even see him like possibly like joining the rebels. Seeing the, the error of his ways type of way or just just to get closer to Cassian? I think at first it might just be almost out of spite for what mm. he perceives as like the Empire taking away his like dream job and like shaming him. Meanwhile, of course, Aunt Dedra Miro has found a, you know, opportunity to get involved with the Ferrex case as she realized the person who stole her Imperial Star Path was there on Ferrex. However, Belvin wants nothing to do with her and calls her out on being too ambitious for, you know, trying to climb the Imperial ladder as quickly as she can. I mean, it seems like Dedra might be onto something more as when she reports that Belvin will not allow her into one of his sectors, Dedra brings up that she's starting to notice a pattern pattern that could lead to a rebellion in the Empire. However, Major Partigas is not convinced since she doesn't have any real hard evidence at this time. Even she states that she's going off gut instinct. So while like on the surface, this definitely reads as, you know, her trying to like climb the ladder. Um, I also like started to wonder like maybe there's something on that star path that like could like incriminate her somehow. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, she's trying to hide something. And that's why she was so concerned once she, like, you know, discovered that it was, like, you know, from her district or whatever. Um, but I could be just reading into things. She's also kind of having her own type of, like, Karn moments here where, you know, the, the administration is not working in the same way that she expected it to. You know, where she's bringing up possible rebellion and everyone's just shooting her down. So I, I thought that was a cool parallel for that character, at least so far. And maybe that drives her to become even more obsessed with this case you know, mm -hmm. and that she's going to end up actually being like the major antagonist of the series. Back on Aldani, Andor learns that their mission may be more futile than he thought. As Vel explains, they are going against a garrison of troops to get the Imperial payroll data. Vel explains that Aldani is being treated as the central hub in the galaxy for the Empire, which makes this payroll information potentially even more important if it's put in the right hands. I gotta say, after all these years, like, I still get excited uh, seeing a TIE fighter, uh, especially, oh, like, yeah. flying this, like, close to the surface, too. Pretty awesome. Kind of sucks that they didn't have any type of scanner that could have possibly found Yeah, it. <laughs> but at this point, they're probably not really searching 
for anyone, mm -hmm. right? Once reaching camp, no one is really all that excited to see a new member being added to the squad unexpectedly. Well, except for Karis Nemec, who just gets a good feeling about Andor. After healing up his arm, the squad is joined by a man that they have on the inside named Gorn, who again challenges why they would be, you know, trusting someone new this late into their plan. Either way, Gorn and Vel go over the plans with Andor, and they explain that they have nine minutes to escape, but they will use a celestial event where it looks like a meteor shower is passing through the sky as hopefully a way to distract their enemies and cover their escape. This seems to put Andor a little bit more at ease as he agrees to be in on their plan. I'm still wondering though, like once the mission's actually happening, if he starts having like second thoughts, you know, do we have a mm. moment where he kind of like ponders, like, you know, making a run for it? Uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. Because that definitely feels like it's part of this character's nature at this point. I definitely feel like he's going to, you know, have like a split decision that might cost one of their lives as well, you know, during that mission. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, this series definitely has like a darker tone. So, mm -hmm. and so far, like Cassian has, you know, shown that he's all about self-preservation. So, also you can tell by the way Nemec was describing the like the crystals blowing up in the sky. That that's where like a third of the special effects budget is gone for this <laughs> series. <laughs> it's gonna be a big moment. Back on Coruscant, we are introduced to Mon Mothma as she enters an antique gallery run by Luthen, who is now wearing a disguise, it seems. You know, uh, he has the long hair, which I thought was going to be for flashbacks, but it actually seems to be his just Coruscant look he has. I thought this moment was awesome. Like, this was some, like, deep spy shit. The fact that, like, he gets into character and everything. Like, who knows how long he's been doing this. Cause like mm -hmm. you kind of even watch him like kind of like go through this transformation like body language wise and everything so i don't know i, I really dug this it kind of felt like what batman does you know when he's bruce wayne in public basically either way it's clear that mon mothma is under constant surveillance as luthan and his employee do what they can to separate mon mothma from her new driver so that luthan and her can you know speak privately we learn in private that mon mothma may be actually bankrolling the rebels but even she is struggling to make a move as spies are everywhere in the empire but mon mothma believes she may know someone who can help even though luthan is very much against adding anyone else i love that like in this series, we're finally going to get to really know, like, Mon Mothma. I mean, I know she appeared in a couple episodes of Clone Wars, but we really mm. didn't get, like, that much of her story. So it'll be interesting to see, like, what makes this character tick. I mean, she's one of the leaders of the Rebel Alliance. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy that we, you know... It, it's taken this long to get to know her. Yeah, it's just something I've never really thought about, but it is insane that there's not like a bunch of books on Mon Mothma. I have a feeling stuff. there's probably some books that we just haven't read, honestly. Uh -huh. um, but I mean, you would think that you'd want that story on the screen. Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not those are Legends books now at this point, who knows? Um, I don't know if Disney has done, you know, any Mon Mothma stories though. But anyway, I mean, this, this museum is a great cover for Luthen and just filled with tons of Easter eggs. Um, I know like the creator of the show uh, was saying that there's not much fan service uh, in this series, but I mean, I, I guess he just put it all in this museum. <laughs> yeah, but in this museum, we had uh, some Mandalorian armor. We had a Gungan shield. Uh, we had a Wookiee helmet from Revenge of the Sith. 
Uh, we had um, we had a couple of holocrons just laying around, uh, which was weird. Yeah. I was like, why does this guy just have Jedi and Sith holocrons <laughs> uh-huh. in the back? Uh, we had uh, Plo Kloon's, uh breathing mask, which uh-huh. is a little <laughs> fucked up. Um, maybe it's maybe it's just his species. You know, it's not his necessarily. I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> and then I think the biggest Easter egg of them all was uh, Star Killer's helmet. Uh, you know, Vader's apprentice in uh, the Force Unleashed games, which is a very cool Easter egg because it's just like a random choice if you make at the end of the game, you can get that armor. So, do you think that means that that story's in canon now? No, because that story makes no sense if you put it in canon. <laughs> I don't remember. Does it? So it would contradict. Yeah, what? there's like a couple of things he does and kill people he kills that wouldn't work with the current timeline. Although, I mean, we've seen that they have no problem like picking and choosing different mm-hmm. characters from you know legends. So who knows? Maybe they find a way to you know shoehorn Star Killer in here. There's no reason. Um, Starkiller's, you know, base model Sam, uh, was it Whitworth or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he's a, why, why he isn't in anything. Yeah, I mean, well, live action. He's, I mean, he is the voice of Darth Maul too on uh, Clone mm-hmm. Wars. So, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't eventually, you know, make an appearance. I mean, it'd be fantastic to have a whole like Starkiller like series, you know, and then you be could cool. tell your own version of that story. It's basically the Jedi hunt. So, <laughs> are you telling me you wouldn't want to see that? As long as it, because the ending Christian, really pissed me shut off. Shut your fucking Everything mouth. Everything else is fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're so full of shit right now. Obviously, they're not going to tell like that story beat for beat, so they're going to uh, do their own version of that story. Come on, man. At home, we see that there is a lot of tension between Mon Mothma and her husband, who is setting up for a dinner filled with people that hate Mon Mothma. They talk about Imperial senators and governors, along with Sly Moore, who stood at Palpatine's side during the Clone Wars as seen in Attack of the Clones. Mothma's displeasure for her husband's guests continues as she tells him about their recent you know, decrees cutting off shipping lanes for the Gorum, which later in time causes riots and protests that get gunned down by the Empire, which pushes Mon Mothma to finally denounce the Empire and Palpatine before turning full rebel, which is all just kind of pretty cool to see the events leading up to here in the show. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like series like this. Like, it, mm-hmm. it really helps to, like, paint the bigger picture and like fill in those like details story-wise that you know have just been kind of broad and you know slightly touched upon i think it'd be really cool to see like some kind of interaction between like mom mothma and uh sly Moore. like i don't i can't remember in clone wars do does she ever get any screen time really not really i don't remember her having much like a, a talking appearance anywhere okay so i mean it's kind of a character we don't know that much mm-hmm. about and once again there might be some kind of like legends book or something that we haven't read she's got to be a pretty big deal the fact that the emperor like trusted her you know mm-hmm. with basically his secret that entire time um and we do know that she's supposed to be also force sensitive so, I mean, maybe she'll start to kind of see through, like, Mom Mothma's, like, facade. All I know is that dinner table is going to be pretty tense. I <laughs> <laughs> was like Thanksgiving at my house. Just, oh, just joking. <laughs> well, I thought this was a really strong episode, and I thought it did a great job of, you know, introducing us to some major players and really, like, laying the groundwork for things to come. I'm assuming this mission of theirs isn't going to be the, like, 
finale of this show. I'm assuming it's going to happen within the next couple episodes or so. Yeah, I think you're right. Because uh, what this show has a 12 episode run and mm-hmm. this is only episode four. So I, I'm guessing this is more of like a first mission type deal. Um, you know, where maybe we kind of see it play out over the next couple episodes. And then we like move on to a even bigger mission, uh, you know, for the finale of the season. Well, all right. Make sure to join us for episode five of Andor next week. All right, Christian, let's jump right into it and break down episode seven of She-Hulk. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for She-Hulk ahead. You have been warned. Think of this totally knackered Prius Prime as your teacher. Um, that was nothing. You just said nothing in response to a very straightforward yeah. question. Mambo, give us a push to the garage, would you? Do I look like a mechanic? Oh. My name is Man Bull, not Mechanical Bull. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> How long have you been waiting to say that? Yeah, that felt very forced. You too? Before I get started here on She-Hulk, big disclaimer here, Damon's computer crashed while we were recording and unfortunately his mic didn't record properly once we got everything back up and running. So for this segment alone, Damon's usually velvety voice will sound like it's coming from a telephone. We do apologize for his mic quality. It will be back to normal next week. This week's episode kicks off where we left off with Jen and Josh, the guy she met during last week's wedding episode. Jen definitely seems like she's head over heels about Josh as we watch their relationship kind of grow here, with them going on dates and texting each other nonstop. But once Jen gets physical with Josh, suddenly the texts stop and Josh seems to disappear. While Jen desperately stares at her phone waiting for Josh to text her, we learn from Nikki that Jen has actually been nominated for Lawyer of the Year. Now, is it... Josh or Joss, Christian? It's Josh with S-H, but, you know, I, I struggle You're with that sometimes. I know, I know. Like Sam Jackson. It's all right. I was calling uh, Cassian uh, Casson. I'm pretty sure, at, at a couple uh-huh. different points. We're talking Andor, so it is what it is. Uh, this was a great opener just because it made you fall in love with Josh, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, you know, once he actually disappeared, like you knew something was up and my heart broke. So I'm not going to lie. Like I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want, you know, what we were kind of talking about last episode where he could possibly be some kind of like agent working for the intelligentsia. Uh, you know, I didn't want that to be true, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't looking good after this. You know, once once he started a ghoster, I was like, ah, uh, yeah, no. Yeah. Because it was either that or, you know, he got kidnapped. And I just, I don't know, I had a bad feeling just like last episode. After three days of not hearing anything from Josh, Jen is suddenly awoken by a call from Abomination's parole officer claiming there has been a malfunction detected with Belansky's inhibitor. This leads Jen and the parole officer to make a visit to Belansky's ranch. There at the ranch, they confirm that it must have been some form of malfunction, but that you know Belansky hasn't transformed into the Abomination, though I'm not 100% on that one. Either way, we do end up meeting some of Emil's guests as they get into a bit of a scuffle that damages Jen's car. This is when we find out more about the super being retreats that Jen wants nothing to do with. Uh, the two that you know destroyed her car were actually Man Bull and El Iguela, who are both here to deal with their underlying issues. But it's clear that Jen couldn't care less as she continues to look for a signal to maybe get a text from Josh. No, I agree. I wasn't trusting Emil's uh, story either. 
I had a really bad feeling like this was all some sort of like elaborate trap set up for Jen. I was also surprised because I really thought, uh, how do you say his name? El Iguel? I believe it's Iguel. Okay. Well, I th I totally thought that was supposed to be like the Matador, uh, you know, who's like a daredevil mm -hmm. villain. So I was shocked when that happened to not be the case at all. I think part of it obviously was the fact that we knew Daredevil was going to be showing up in this series. Uh, you know, just kind of led me down that road. But yeah, I mean, he obviously looks very similar to the Matador. Mm -hmm. And I had absolutely no clue who Manbull was. Uh, that That's too deep of a cut even for me. <laughs> They're definitely just picking, you know, the ones that they think this, Marvel won't want to make a yeah, project this is on. like a grade D character. Uh-huh. <laughs> so interestingly enough, Ellie Guell is a mutant, apparently. Uh, so this would be the second mutant that this series has introduced, along with Mr. Immortal. I don't know if that means anything, but it just feels like mutants are like popping up left and right now in the MCU. Well, it's like, do they even know that they are mutants, you know, at this point? I guess, yeah. It's, I mean, you would have to think that they'd be questioning where their powers are coming from, but I mean, you're right. Maybe there isn't like some like official like terminology at play mm. yet, but how long have they been mutants for? Like, when did their powers actually develop? But regardless, you gotta figure a shield or even damage control probably know about them and are like monitoring the situation here. Because there is a whole lot of superhumans all of a sudden in the MCU. Jen scours the retreat looking for a signal only to end up running into a Mills group therapy session where we're introduced to several other villains like Porcupine and a fake vampire named Sarizen who is definitely different from his comic book counterpart. Yeah, because in the comics, I think he's considered like one of the first vampires. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case here though. Um, I did know of Porcupine solely because of like you know, uh, Marvel's official handbook uh, back from the 80s. Uh, I believe in the comics, he's some kind of like weapons developer. Well, now he's just a dude in a smelly suit. <laughs> also, knowing that Blade is going to exist in this universe, I would not want to pretend to be a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been funny if like at the end of this episode, Blade did show up and like kill the dude. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> I guess he was a vampire. We also see the return of Wrecker from episode two, which immediately sets off Jen. After a quick fourth wall break to remind us who Wrecker is, she hulks up and tosses him across the room. While Jen is less than pleased he is there, Emil and the group get Jen to actually sit down with them and hear out Wrecker, who seems to have had a change in his life. But unfortunately, Wrecker, for some reason, doesn't disclose why he was attacking Jen to begin with. Yeah, so like, is this entire group reformed is that what's going on here do they ever fully explain that they don't necessarily say why like or if they are fully reformed but they're just dealing out you know going through their issues you know <laughs> emails helping them yeah i wasn't sure if this was some kind of like government like mandated therapy or what but mm -hmm. um i was surprised to see rucker here and of course right away once again i was like this is a trap this has to be a trap uh, but 
apparently I was wrong. When Jen goes on to say that she doesn't have any problems and doesn't need to be there, the group points out Jen's obsession over her phone. She eventually breaks down a bit and talks about her situation with Josh, which they all are there to give her advice and also kind of judge her as she tells them about, you know, the text that she sent. And ultimately, the group comes to the conclusion that she's just being ghosted. Being confronted by the truth of it all, the group does get Jen to open up about her insecurities of, you know, being, you know, She-Hulk and how people seem to like her more than Jen, which seems to relieve some pressure for Jen. And the group does convince her to delete Josh's phone number and move on. Yeah, right here where she actually then transforms back to Jen. I was like, oh, they're totally going to jump her and, you know, get her blood. You know? like, yes. They're all totally working <laughs> for intelligentsia. This is some elaborate, weird scheme to get her, like, vulnerable and to transform into human form. And once again, I was wrong. <laughs> that wasn't the case. I mean, I was there with you, though. Like, even up to the moment, Blansky's, like, you know, giving her the handshake goodbye. I was like, okay, and then she's going to stab her, you know, right? <laughs> or, like, someone would reveal, like, they have, like, a vial of her blood. That's what I was mm. kind of expecting. Like, they got her to fall asleep in the Urkin? Is that what they call it? The little steam putt? To meditate. I think Yurkin, Yurkin or something like that. What was Rucker's line? I'm hurting for a Yurkin or something. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, yeah. actually, she said it. No, she said it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I was expecting like, oh, you know, they'll show something where she like falls asleep, you know, while she's meditating and someone sneaks in and steals her blood. You know, most likely, you know, the vampire wannabe dude. But once again, that wasn't the case. I'm kind of wondering, like, like were the writers not expecting us to sniff out Josh? You know, so soon. Perhaps, but it, it's just felt too obvious that it would be Josh. So I was willing to go along this road of, is it Blansky? Is it you know, Porcupine? But maybe writers took that into account too, that people think, oh, this is too obvious. You know, we got to throw in a red herring, uh -huh. which is this whole like therapy session episode, you know, just to make it a big reveal at the end. By the end of the episode, Jen leaves Emil's camp with a new lease on life. But before the show closes out, we rewind back to the night that Josh slept with Jen and we see what really went down as Josh copied all of Jen's data and took a picture of her sending it with a blood vial emoji to the Hulk King from the Intelligentsia site. Like I said, I mean, even though, you know, we saw it coming a mile away, still pretty heartbreaking because it felt like Jen actually <laughs> found someone. He seemed like uh, such a nice guy. Uh, they definitely had some like Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan chemistry going, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what a creep too, like taking a picture of her while she's like laying there. Like, I'm pretty sure the whole king didn't need that. You never know what they were asking for on that I, website. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> now, uh, do you think he's actually, like, one of, like, the main members of Intelligentsia? Like, an established character from the comics? Or do you think he's just, like, a run-of-the-mill henchman? Um, I mean, my first guess was that he was just a lackey, but I, you never know. I, he could have a secret origin. I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. I mean, we only have two episodes left. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, and we still have damage control to show up and also Daredevil. Daredevil so. and Frogman. Don't forget Frogman. Frogman, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they've got a lot of, like, loose ends to tie up here unless uh -huh. they're just, like, baking on a second season. So all in all, I enjoyed this episode. I love the idea of, like, a super villain, like, therapy group. Uh I do appreciate that they're like moving the main plot along now. 
like there's more of a through line to where we're like headed to. Yeah, they changed up the formula a little bit this week. Uh, there was no B storyline, but I, it didn't like I didn't feel like I lost any type of pace or anything because of that. Um, and I did enjoy this one a little bit better than I had the last two weeks. So I thought it was a little bit more fun. So my guess is with Mickey dropping the line about Jen being nominated for Lawyer of the Year, that, you know, the next episode we'll see Jen at that gala that's, you know, been shown in the trailer you know the one where like damage control ends up having to like raid and i don't want to over assume but maybe it says it's a lawyer of the year type of gala that's where matt murdoch shows up maybe i don't know <laughs> maybe or maybe this is another trap by the intelligentsia like maybe they just threw like a fake award show you know together to get like jen where they want her to that's fucked up <laughs> no boyfriend and then no reward that's just cruel <laughs> all i know is in the trailers it definitely looks like damage control raids that you know award show so so mm. we know something's going down there but anyway join us next week as we break down episode eight of she hulk and now a quick word from our sponsor manscaped Hey you, got bush? Well, you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. Taking control of your bush is important. These products are so good, you're going to be showing pride in your new bush-free yard. It's a fact that you'll have the best kept nut sack on the cul-de-sac, so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20NerdShow for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high oh, and tight. Yeah. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. So listeners get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at Manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. So as Damon said up front, it's time for our fifth ever horror month. This time around, we're doing horror throughout the decades. We're going to be giving you our top fives for the last five decades. And this week, we're talking the 70s. Now, Damon, what made the 1970s such a great time for horror fans? So while I can't speak for Christian, for me, the 70s by far is my favorite decade when it comes to horror. 
and that's because the genre as a whole was experiencing a renaissance that really laid the foundation for decades to come by producing classic films that are still to this day considered the high watermark for horror. During this period, restrictions on standards in cinema had started to loosen, allowing artists to stretch boundaries like never before. The nation was in turmoil, crime was escalating, Vietnam and Watergate loomed like a dark cloud, and all this reflected in many ways in the horror films hitting the theaters. A lot of the scares were no longer coming from mad scientists in laboratories or from coffins in Transylvania. No, the horror became more grounded and real, with us and our neighbors becoming the monsters lurking in the shadows. It's really all these elements along with a crop of legendary filmmakers that make the 70s one of the most influential decades in horror cinema history. Quickly before we get started, I got some honorable mentions. Uh, these are honestly films that probably would make my top five any other decade. Uh, but anyway, honorable mentions to Black Christmas, Phantasm, Suspiria, and Alien. I mean, that list alone should show you just how jam-packed this decade really is. Christian, any honorable mentions? For me, it's going to be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And honestly, yeah, I forgot just how many like great horror films came out in the 70s. And now Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 1970s. Number five, Dawn of the Dead. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here. So George Romero's zombie epic is laced with as much social commentary as it is with gore. And dear lord, thanks to Tom Savini's game-changing effects, there's plenty of gore to go around. Dawn was a wicked look at where we were at as a society at the time, and from the opening scene in the projects to the political commentators pushing their agendas at the brink of apocalypse, the film somehow feels even more relevant today. And just like he did with Night of the Living Dead, Romero proved that horror can be so much more than just cheap scares, and he did this all the while redefining the genre, because after Dawn, horror was never truly the same. Number five, Carrie. Curse. Man, that curse was a curse of blood. You should have told me, Mama. You should have told me. Oh, Lord. Help the sinning woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. She no. may have been tempted by the Antichrist. She may have committed the sin of lustful thoughts. No, Mom. Oh, don't no. lie to me, Carrietta. Don't you know by now I can see inside you? I can see the sin as surely as God no, can. No, you're we'll me. pray. No. We'll pray, no. woman. No. Pray no. Brian De Palma took a stab at Stephen King's tale of adolescence turned horror and created a 70s classic. From the cinematography to the performances, each scene is rife with, you know, what should be the teenage fantasy, but each moment ends tragically as Carrie yearns for a normal, happy life, only to, you know, really face cruelty from home and school life. Scenes start at these, you know, high fantasy-like shots and fall into these dizzying nightmares that are really what made this film such a memorable experience. Sissy Spasic um, becoming a telekinetic devil is just as horrifying to watch as it is a cheerable moment and was an easy choice for my top five. Number four, Jaws. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living. 
until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. So listen, everyone has a right to their own opinion. But one fact in my mind that's just undebatable is Jaws is a fucking horror film. I mean, it has everything you could want out of a monster flick. An unstoppable terrifying creature, a thick sense of dread, enough suspense to choke on, and a legendary white-knuckling score. Then you throw in Spielberg's perfect pacing and ingenuity, and you've got movie magic. I mean, there's a reason why a whole nation was scared to go to the beach after watching what's considered the first real summer blockbuster, and that's because Jaws is one of the greatest horror films ever made. Number 4. The Amityville Horror A descent into madness that nearly consumes the Lutz family and made a certain window pattern terrify generations. The Amityville Horror stands as one of my favorite horror flicks. Um, the possessed house theme is felt in every moment as a hateful energy produces randomly violent moments that terrify the family. And then we have James Brolin's performance where we see his character get torn apart by insanity. It's a great tense ride as the family family is forced to accept the danger of their home. It also has ties to a possible real life story, which scared me even more as a kid thinking about it, you know, really got my imagination going. So if by some chance you haven't heard of it, give Amityville a chance. Number three, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So in the early 70s, what Toby Hooper delivered with Texas Chainsaw Massacre is pretty much the impetus for modern day horror. I mean, its influence on the genre is simply unquantifiable and it's still being felt today. And while Leatherface and family are some of the most depraved and twisted villains ever put on film, it's Hooper's guerrilla style filmmaking that adds a strange sense of realism and really takes the film from morbid entertainment to a DNA-altering experience. Fan of the genre or not, everyone remembers the first time they saw Leatherface do his chainsaw dance on that dusty Texas road. And it's really moments like that etched on our collective psyches that make Texas Chainsaw Massacre a horror classic. Number three, The Exorcist. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? They just haven't been able to make an exorcism story that tops the harrowing tale of The Exorcist. By the time I had seen the movie, it had been spoofed a hundred times over, but none of that was capable of desensitizing or preparing me for the tale of corruption and evil that Pazuzu's hold over Reagan was. And while the spectacle of the demon is the big draw here, the story of Father Karras brings a ton of depth to the film's final moments that leaves a truly lasting impression. Number two. Halloween. I spent 
eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. John Carpenter's Halloween is an absolute masterpiece, bar none. And that's because what he delivers us with this film is just the ultimate personification of pure evil in the form of the shape, who, with no rhyme or reason, blending in the shadows, is stalking his next victim. And that's what makes Michael Myers so different and effective. He's more of a force of nature than a man. I mean, to the point that his own doctor, who's supposed to be trying to help and heal him, instead chooses to hunt him down, knowing what's at stake. Filled with just some brilliant, innovative camera work and one of the greatest film scores ever composed, it's ingrained in both the season and the pop culture lexicon like only few films ever achieved. I mean, so much so that to this day, whenever I hear the film's classic theme, I swear I can smell the jack-o'-lanterns on a cold autumn night, just like I did when I first saw the movie decades ago. Number two, Alien. Am I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God. It's moving right towards you. Uh. Move. Get out of there. Don't you move. Don't. Move, don't. Move, don't. Get out. A space-driven monster horror film with palpable atmosphere is exactly what Ridley Scott's Alien is. While Alien does a ton of cool shit and the Xenomorph is a beautifully disturbing monster, what this film does best is immerse you in the tight halls of the Nostromo as you watch Sigourney Weaver's absolutely iconic performance as Ripley. You feel the fact that she is alone out here in space with an alien going after her and the film is cut in a way that makes you feel like the Xenomorph is right behind her at every corner, even if you barely see it. It's a truly unforgettable experience, which is something that I've always loved about Scott's work. Whether I like the film or not, the world is always so believable and immersive and you always leave feeling like you've been teleported away somewhere. And now Damon's number 170s horror film, The Exorcist. When I first saw this film, at the ripe young age of 11, it rocked me to my core. Even though I didn't grow up in a religious household, it still felt like every frame of this film was sacrilegious, like Pazuzu was going to somehow possess me through my VCR. I mean, I was a Fangoria kid in the late 80s, and I really did consider myself a pretty seasoned gorehound at the time, but watching Reagan's transformation from looking like one of my classmates to the devil incarnate was just too much to bear witness. And mind you, at this point in my young life, I was still only really experiencing the film on a rudimentary level. It was only over time that I truly started to appreciate Freakin' and Blatty's classic tale of faith, spirituality, and sacrifice. 
It's because of those themes and, of course, their fearless determination to show us the most twisted corruption of innocence ever captured on film uh, that really elevates The Exorcist above other movies. So much so that it's really still the high bar today. I mean, every five years or so, some marketing twit decides to make the cardinal sin of claiming a new genre film is as scary as The Exorcist. Spoiler, comparing your film to The Exorcist is the ultimate kiss of death, so don't do it. But it really does go to show you that almost 50 years later, people are still evoking its name as one of the scariest films of all time. And damn it, rightfully so, because it is. And that's why The Exorcist easily tops my list as my favorite horror film of the 1970s. And for Christian's number 170s horror flick, Halloween. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. At this point, it almost feels like cheating to put Halloween at number one, but I can't help but love slasher villains, and Michael Myers' presentation in Halloween makes for one of the most haunting and terrifying of them all. Beyond the natural association with Halloween and the pure nostalgia, is a man driven to kill you, and one that simply can't be stopped. He's around the corner, just out of sight, and he will get you one way or another. And with Dr. Loomis telling the audience what we're witnessing is the personification of evil, Michael ascends being just a man, as Damon said before. 1978's Halloween is a staple to the horror genre and will be watched till the end of time. And you should probably be watching it this horror month. This week's episode is also sponsored by Athletic Greens. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I realized gamer foods like energy drinks and chips weren't all that nutritional. I hated taking vitamins as well and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. And luckily with AG1, I've found a tropical flavored blend that I drink every single morning. Well, Christian, that's because with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery focus, and aging. You know, all of the things. I even have my family hooked on it, Christian, and they love it. We're even making sure to take it with us on vacation this summer. Your subscription comes with a year supply of vitamin D, which is important for a recluse streamer like me that admittedly doesn't get enough sunlight. And let me tell you, I've never slept better, and that's because AG1 supports better sleep quality along with mental clarity and alertness. And you also have to love the price. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and that's cheaper than buying all the supplements yourself. And we're not alone in loving athletic greens because currently they have over 7,000 five-star reviews. So right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every single day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit Athletic athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Warning spoiler alert. 
Major spoilers for House of the Dragon ahead. You have been warned. You pass judgment. The queen makes a wish. What servant of the realm would not strive to fulfill it? I assume you will write to your father now? Paris, I did not wish for this. I feel certain you will reward me. When the time is right. Out with the old and in with the new as we hop 10 years into the future this week on House of the Dragon and kick off the show with Emma Darcy taking up the reins as Princess Rhaenyra and the scene that rivals the first scene we saw with her mother as Rhaenyra's giving childbirth with her third son. At first the adjustment was a challenge especially for Rhaenyra but as this scene progressed and the episode altogether it really felt like a lot of the same mannerisms and attention to detail was there for the switch between the older and younger characters cast. Either way, the opening sequence really set it all for where our characters were with one another, you know, really setting these lines between Alicent and Rhaenyra, as Rhaenyra, fresh out of labor, has to carry her child, who is clearly not her husband's, by the way, all the way to go see Alicent. For some reason, she's forcing to see the baby because she wants to know if this child would look anything like a Valerian. The big focus between these two characters is now, you know, a war between, you know, who has control over the now fading Viserys, as Viserys just wants everyone to get along. And we also notice that all of Rhaenyra's bad choices are really starting to catch up with her. In the meantime, we have fun characters like Sir Christian Cole, who has been harboring hate for the last 10 years, which, you know, really seems healthy. And he seems to be taking his aggression out on Rhaenyra's kids, while, you know, giving preferable treatment to Alicent's. Um, Rhaenyra's lover and secret baby daddy catches on to Kristen's behavior and unfortunately can't hide his own feelings as he lashes out on Kristen in front of the king. Again, I felt like in a regular season of Game of Thrones, this is a story that would have played out at least a couple episodes. But with the time skipping nature, Sir Harwin Strong meets his demise in this week's episode. And at the hands of his you know, sketchy brother, Larry Strong, no less, who really has a coming out party this episode. I know last week I said uh, he's definitely gonna be a nefarious character in the future, but I didn't expect him to go full psycho the very next week and kill his brother and father in the name of the queen. Right now, as far as the kids go, I can kind of take them or leave them. Their performances were nothing that really stood out to me. This episode really just gave more for the parents to do where we see Rhaenyra doting over her children while Alicent seems a little bit more distant and toxic overall. I mean she really puts her drama with Rhaenyra on her oldest son who has no ill will for Rhaenyra or her kids. But unfortunately Aegon is getting pressured by his mother to turn on them so we will see how that plays out. Also I know they don't have cell phones or the internet or anything like that but my god out the window, bro? Really? Anyway, we also get a bit of a tragic short story across the sea with Damon and his new wife, Lena, who are living outside the Seven Kingdoms. Lena is pregnant and desperate to go back and raise her other two children in her family home, but Damon seems to be avoiding returning to Westeros. Um, he's also struggling as a father as well, and he isn't really giving one of his children, who doesn't have a dragon, much attention as well. When Lena, near the end of this episode, isn't able to give birth to their third child, 
um, Damon is given a similar choice as his brother Viserys at the start of this season, which was a great parallel. However, he can't choose to end his wife's life and save the child, but Lena, in a state of pure depression and rage, goes out to her own dragon and has herself burned alive before Damon can save her. These consecutive events, you know, really were a great way to introduce the second half of this show. The showrunners described this as a second premiere and it genuinely felt like that. We have our new villains on the board and the dominoes have already been pushed. I just hope that I care a little bit more about the kids or the show gives me a little bit more of a reason to care about them as I know they're all going to be coming into the crossfire of the tensions between Allison and Rhaenyra. They were probably just my only negatives of this episode. I also wonder if Allison will fall into a darker path with allies like Larry Strong who are willing to take lives for her. Her morals are definitely going to be tested the rest of this show, but we will see how that all plays out. Join us next week for more House of the Dragon talk. Alright, up next we have a review for Rob Zombie's The Monsters. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for The Monsters ahead. You have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. Greetings from Transylvania! That's a strange way of saying hello. Oh, I guess we're gonna have to get used to it. The Monsters follows a family of monsters who moves from Transylvania to an American suburb. It was written and directed by Rob Zombie and starring Sherry Moon Zombie, Jeff Daniel Phillips, and Daniel Roebuck. So growing up in the 80s, one of my fondest memories revolves around having the day off of school, either due to a holiday or illness, and catching up on reruns of some of my favorite 60s shows, like, you know, Batman, Gilligan's Island, and of course, The Munsters. There weren't a million channels at the time, so you were kind of at the mercy of station programmers. But lucky for me, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock was kind of the sweet spot with some of my favorite shows playing. I had just started getting into the Universal Monsters. So I gravitated naturally towards the Monsters. And I love seeing these weird zany versions of those characters on my TV screen. To the point that when the Addams Family started to experience this like resurgence of popularity with multiple major motion pictures pictures and even hell MC Hammer rapping their theme song. So I started to wonder why the same wasn't being done with the monsters, especially knowing the copycat nature of Hollywood. Kids love their safe and fun kind of gateway horror. I mean, look at Hotel Transylvania for crying out loud. Anyway, all that was to say I was genuinely intrigued when the monsters film was recently announced. Even though I was kind of confused by Rob Zombie's name being attached, while I'm a fan of Zombie's music in some of his films, and I know he's a huge Monsters fan, I was just a little worried about him doing a family comedy. And while that did turn out to be part of the issue, unfortunately, that was one of many. But before we go down that road, let's talk some of the positives. The Monsters looks amazing. Visually, 
Zombie leaned into the aesthetics of the original show. It has that classic B-movie feel to it, and thanks to Zombie turning up the color palette, it looks like eye candy for old-school horror fans. I guess one of the reasons he did that was because Universal didn't want him to shoot it in black and white. So instead, he went to the opposite side of the spectrum and made the film really pop. I also thought for the most part, the performances were all fine, uh, except for Sherry Moon Zombie doing this weird cadence for Lily. I mean, if you watch the original series, Lily is played pretty straight, meaning she's just like every other TV mom, except she happens to be a vampire. So I didn't really understand this weird choice they made for the character. Uh, but Jeff Daniel Phillips and Daniel Roebuck did an admirable job like trying to make their roles work. It just wasn't enough, though. Uh, and that's because what Zombie failed to do was capture the charm of the original series. And yes, the humor and story is supposed to be campy and ridiculous. That's fine, but it also needs to be clever and interesting. What we got here with this film is just a stream of groan-inducing dad jokes along with a series of events that just kind of happen. There's a real lack of cohesiveness with this script. And with a bloated runtime of an hour and 50 fucking minutes, it became incredibly tedious. I mean, without a strong story and that charm I was talking about, you never get a chance to fall in love with these characters like so many did in the past with the originals. I do feel, though, that there was potential here, and maybe after a couple more runs on the script, a few more drafts, if you will, like making it like focused and tighter, like this film could have been a success story. But alas, I'm going to go ahead... <laughs> and give Rob Zombie's Munsters a D. And that honestly might be me grading on a curve. But I could see myself turning this on during the Halloween season just to kind of bask in the fun, campy visuals. But that is in no way an endorsement. Like, if you want to watch the Munsters for yourself, do yourself a favor and seek out the originals. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. Before we talk some gaming news, I want to take a second to react to that Last of Us trailer that dropped this past week. This is your chance. Oh, that shot. You keep her alive. And you set everything right. I mean, say what you will, you know, with however Warner and Discovery has been handling the merger and, you know, all of DC's properties right now, HBO still seems to be producing some incredible projects. This trailer was a sizzle reel of moments and scenes that, you know, people who've played the game will recognize immediately. The fact that, you know, the opening sequence of the game looks like it's being entirely recreated for the show gave me pure goosebumps, let alone seeing the same like dilapidated structures of this version of Boston. It feels like they're really, you know, doing this some justice here, which is super exciting because we've had a lot of you know busted you know live action versions of games come out recently but just like i'm saying that i had gotten excited for those same projects and was burned by all of them so i will 
have some type of hesitation before going into this, but at the same time, I have a lot of faith in, you know, Neil Druckmann, you know, working with actors like Pedro Pascal, who really looks like Joel here, all, along with the hell ride that this show should be, with him taking Ellie, who's being played by Bella Ramsey, which I do hope that Bella Ramsey does a fantastic job in this, uh, because, you know, the potential for them to cover the second game as well is always, you know, an option out there. But I mean, hey, even the choice of song for the trailer came straight out of the game. So I was pretty impressed by our first glimpse of the show, especially the design of the clickers as well, looking just as they do in the game. Neil Druckmann must have really been able to throw his weight around during the production of this show, because this trailer just really captured that same feel from the game. But you know, Last of Us will debut on HBO next year. So we'll keep an eye on it and we'll definitely talk the next trailer that drops when they give us more of a like talking and you know story like trailer but back to the more video game side of things where we found out this week that Google seems to be dropping out of the cloud gaming world as they announced that they will be ending their Google Stadia services January 18th, 2023, which shouldn't be too surprising as Stadia honestly felt dead in the water from day one. Google exec Phil Harrison made the announcement claiming that Stadia simply did not pick up enough traction. And let's be real, there were a ton of factors just going against Stadia. It launched right before 2020 with zero exclusive titles and then studios were hit with several delays because of the pandemic. On top of that, the gaming giant Xbox was leading the charge going into its third year with Game Pass and offering day one releases on their platform, which Stadia wasn't able to do. I mean, even I at this point, forgot the service even existed as Google didn't really do much to push the service into the forefront of gaming. And honestly, all these same things I'm saying about Google Stadia can be said about Amazon's Luna Cloud service. I mean, when's the last time you even heard anyone mention that Amazon has a cloud gaming service? For anyone listening though, who has been you know playing or using Stadia, you'll be happy to know that game developers and producers over at Ubisoft and Bungie the like aren't currently working on game save transfers so you don't lose your progress when you're forced to play on another service or console. At the end of the day, Xbox will end up owning the market on cloud gaming if no one really steps up to the plate. Because I mean, even Sony's uh, PS Now stuff just isn't up to par with how Xbox is you know, handling Game Pass as a service, which isn't necessarily 100% cloud gaming, I understand that, but they are building an infrastructure to handle that better than anyone else. The hard part about all of this is just really investing in games before you know, their release and hoping that the popularity can bring subscribers. It's really all just a pretty big gamble. And I can understand why Google took the approach that they did. And truthfully, as I stated back when, you know, they were developing Stadia, I thought if anyone could be trusted with stable cloud gaming, Google would probably be the one. Unfortunately, they just couldn't hang with the likes of Sony, Microsoft, and Steam. And honestly, I feel like we're gonna be talking about Netflix and Amazon having their games as a service coming to an end in the near future as well. Either way, for now, gamers, just continue to pick up controllers where you can, wherever you like. If you do enjoy playing Stadia, let me know. I, I just never got a chance to actually try out the experience. Um, you can let us know at AmazingNerdLive on Twitter, that's where we post about more of the gaming side of this show, plus um, all the updates that come with Twitch. You can hang out with us on Twitch Saturday through Tuesday, 
all horror month long as spooky games make their return. I will be playing Saw 2 on Xbox 360. We're hopping right back on into Alien Isolation, which you heard during my list this week that that's one of my favorite horror movies. And that game really captures the feel of Ridley Scott's Alien. Also, I will be making my girlfriend play The Quarry and we will be hanging out with Victor for some bonus streams with friends all month long on top of the games that we're already playing. So make sure to join us live and follow our gaming focused Twitter at AmazingNerdLive for updates. For now, let's move on to wrestling. So right now it's Wednesday again, so it's time to talk some AEW for us. Um, and apparently it's a new era after Grand Slam. Yeah, I'm guessing that's because a lot of titles changed hands uh, last week. Um, you know, we've got a new champion, I guess, in Moxley. Although he, kind he of. feels like the old champion, right? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Since he's held the belt for the majority of the last like four months. But it is what it is. Um, I thought this was a weird episode of Dynamite, but I mean, a lot of that had to do with the hurricane right now in Florida. Uh, Tony uh, told all the wrestlers who live out there that Dynamite wasn't mandated, which was the right thing to do. And, you know, we, of course, hope that everyone's safe who, you know, is out there in Florida. It's it's a pretty scary situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, it's just a wrestling show. It is what it is. You know, everyone's safety is more important. But yeah, because of that, it it felt like they're kind of like. I don't know, flying by the seat of their pants. Like you could tell that things were probably reshuffled quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, segments felt like they had more time and some of them maybe too much time. Um, and then, yeah, there wasn't as many wrestling matches as there usually is. And I think there was five actually, but you know, Ricky Stark's match was pretty much a squash match. So mm-hmm. and I'm sure part of that really is more of a case of, You know, usually Dynamite's jam-packed, almost too Mm jam-packed, but I don't know, there was a noticeable difference. It just felt like you could really tell that they were relying on their talking segments to get them through this week. Absolutely. Compared to the wrestling. Absolutely. Like, we had, I mean, MJF had two, like, big segments. Uh Uh-huh. So, and we'll talk about that soon. I wasn't a huge fan of what they did tonight with MJF. Uh, But yeah, let's go ahead and let's jump into the card. Speaking of someone with two segments, we start off today's episode with Jericho celebrating his big win, having the Ring of Honor World Championship. Yeah, once they announced this earlier this week, I I knew that Jericho would make this a spectacle, and that's exactly what this was. Uh, hmm, you course. know, uh, JAS came out in their signature matching tr- uh, track suits. They had balloons, they had streamers, they even had Luigi Primo out there flipping pizzas for them. Uh, this guy is really milking his like five minutes uh-huh. of fame, <laughs> but good for him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this was all spectacle, but I mean, that's what you get with Jericho. Um, I thought it worked really well, especially as a catalyst for, you know, a confrontation between him and Danny Garcia. 
Um, I thought Jericho giving Danny the, you know, bucket hat was a real nice touch, you know, basically <laughs> trying to get him to eat shit. Um, you know, then Brian Danielson's music hits, he comes down, you know, defending Garcia, telling him that he's his own man. Um, Jericho obviously disagrees to the ire of Daniel Garcia. At some point, he throws down the bucket hat. He knocks out uh, Primo uh, to a chorus of booze from the crowd. <laughs> uh, he gets in Jericho's face. He starts surveying the crowd, um, naming a bunch of like sports entertainment things he could do. Uh, which he threw a pizza out of the ring, which was not cool. Well, and yes, and the crowd booed that. So he he got a mixed reaction with this uh-huh. whole bit of like naming all the sports entertainment things because it was like, you know, do you want me to team with uh, Justin Roberts? And people did actually kind of cheer. I was like, okay, maybe we need to pump the brakes on that. <laughs> but it got the story where it needed to go um, at the end of the day. But I did think the setup for the tag match next week. Between uh, Jericho and Sammy and uh, Brian and Garcia was a little flat. Um, So, like, that challenge could have been delivered a little better. Also, like, they jumped right into the confrontation between Daddy Magic and Garcia. um, Setting up the match for Brian and Daddy Magic, you know, right after the segment. Mm -hmm. Um, It just, I don't know, it felt a little clunky, you know, in the long run. So I felt like that could have been a little smoother, but overall, I think it got the point across. Um, I I do like Daddy Magic's fire, though, on the microphone and everything. I've been kind of anticipating that confrontation, too, because like 2.0 really hasn't said anything about everything going on between Garcia and Jericho. And like since like 2.0 and Garcia were tied in the beginning, I was kind of like, you know, waiting to see like what their take would be. And, you know, I knew that they were going to end up siding with Jericho, but it was just interesting to see like how disappointed they were in Garcia. No, yeah. Like most of the segments that happen on this show, especially all the talking points, I definitely feel like there's a lot of good and mixed in with some clunkiness like that. I do agree. I did not expect them to book the the tag match the way that they did. Like I thought that was going to happen eventually, but I didn't think it was coming like in the like near future, uh, just the, as quickly as they you know brought it up in this segment. Well, and the least. fact that they brought it up and then booked another match right after uh-huh. like <laughs> it just was weird. It's like maybe have that match between Brian and um, you know Daddy Magic. And then, like, announce the tag match for next week. Like, have Brian get on the mic afterwards and challenge Jericho to the match. You know, I feel like that would have been a lot smoother. Um, Mm. But this way, it just, it felt like that tag match for next week got kind of lost in the shuffle. How'd you feel about the uh, Danielson versus uh, Daddy Magic, as you call him? Uh, <laughs> that's match. his name, man. What do you mean? That's, that's not a, my nickname for Matt him. Matt Menard. Yes, Daddy Magic, though. That's what he calls himself. <laughs> Fuck the Matt Menard shit, man. That's uh-huh. Daddy fucking Magic. I thought it was a fine TV match. Like, I, I love Menard. I think he's been great on the microphone. I mean, he's such a fucking character. And what him and uh, Cool Ann Ange have, like, you know, done for their career since joining AEW. I mean, think about it. Like, there are these guys who are on NXT who are really struggling, getting really no TV time whatsoever. They were mm-hmm. let go by the company. And then they show up on AEW and they've really, like, taken the ball and run with it. Like, they make the most out of all their opportunities. And they've 
really been featured ever since, like, you know, signing the dotted line with AEW. Um, and not everyone can say that, right? Like, bigger names have struggled in AEW to get mm-hmm. as much TV time as 2.0. So, I mean, my hats are off to them. I could definitely see, like, a big you know, baby face run for 2.0 eventually in the future. Um, Maybe. Have you seen, uh, see, you haven't seen that fucking promo. Christian, do yourself a favor. Go watch the promo the Daddy Magic cuts after I believe it's blood and guts. And tell me that guy can't be a fucking giant baby face. Like, everyone should go watch that promo. That guy <laughs> has nothing but charisma. So I, I can see a huge run for those guys. I definitely feel like there's a title run in their future uh, somewhere down the line. But no, I was surprised by how much uh, Menard was getting in on Brian. Brian is willing to just put anyone over. And of course, he he put this match and him over throughout it. You can still see, um, you know, Brian's skill and ability showing off that he can put over anyone in a match. Yeah, no, absolutely. He, he has a way of making his opponent. Not that, you know, mm-hmm. Menard's not a talented wrestler. No, um, I'm just but, saying. Yeah, even in a quick, what, like five minute match, he mm-hmm. has a way of making his opponent shine we'll talk more about this later but right now i'm really loving everything they're doing with jericho and the roh title after that we got a brief video package featuring john moxley versus juice robinson with robinson kind of getting his you know thoughts on you know the last 10 years of hating moxley yeah 10 years so he must be talking about like their time in nxt together i guess so um yeah, I, I thought this was a good package, though. Uh, you know, let the audience know the history of, you know, Juice and Moxley, uh, you know, all their matches in uh, New Japan and everything like that. Uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we're complaining about uh, not happening earlier uh, this past summer. So, I mean, I'm glad that they're starting to do these kind of packages. Mm-hmm. Especially with all that early Ring of Honor stuff, uh, just no video packages saying, hey, here's this wrestler. We're having them on a match. Or, hey, I bought Ring of Honor. And (laughs) who knows what that means, (laughs) right? Uh Uh, But yeah, they didn't even do a a promo package for that when he bought Ring of Honor. He just stood in the ring and just made the announcement and that was it. (laughs) Essentially, yes. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, But yeah, no, I'm glad that they're starting to do more and more video packages like this, uh, especially when they bring in talent from outside of the company. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there is definitely a value in that. So um, instead of just like throwing these matches out there cold. Um, And I like that Moxley is, you know, still like that fighting champion and everything. And I'm guessing eventually that's going to be his undoing. Although I'm, I'm not going to lie, when I first saw this match announced, I was a little annoyed. Um, And I don't know if this match was made in anticipation of the hurricane, um, but it just felt like, couldn't Moxley be wrestling someone on your roster instead? Especially since you have such a big roster and so many guys sitting in catering right now. I mean, even if it's a loss, I mean, it's at least, you know, a loss against the champion. Like, I don't Uh, feel like you lose anything losing against the champion. So, but it is what it is. I at least liked Robinson's promo. Like, I I enjoyed what he was saying about, like, if I win here, I can become, you know, champion next week. And he really felt like he was pushing for it. That's great. But, like, why is this guy getting an eliminator match, Uh you know, opposed (laughs) to, you know, 
what, like 80% of your roster who's actually there wrestling or supposedly supposed to be wrestling there like every week. (laughs) So, I I mean, I guess part of the promo package was really pushing the fact that, you know, in the past, Juice has had Moxley's number, but still, like, it just felt a little weird for, you know, Juice to randomly show up out of nowhere. Mm. But like I said, if it was all because of the hurricane, then I feel like it's it's forgivable. Like, I'm pretty much just giving this whole show a mulligan because of the hurricane, <laughs> you know, which I mean, you kind of have you kind of have to do. Oh, speaking of uh, video packages, there was a quick recap about what happened between MJF and Wheeler Yuta before we saw Wheeler come back on out to confront him. Once again, I thought this was smart, you know, remind people what happened last week or, you know, tell the people who didn't watch the show last week exactly why this next segment is happening and why it's important. Mm -hmm. I think when AEW started, a lot of people were turned off by the idea of doing these kind of video packages because Raw and SmackDown do them at nauseam, right? Where they they don't Mm -hmm. give their fans any credit whatsoever and kind of treat them like idiots to the point where they kind of like have to beat them over the head like constantly with like, oh, this is part of the story. This is where this is going. This is what happened. Like constantly reminds. Like sometimes they would do video packages for something that literally just happened a segment before, <laughs> uh-huh. you know? or before the commercial break, or at least show you like the highlight video of what happened, you know, before the commercial break. It's like, okay, I just saw that, right? Um, you know, if you care that much about this show, then you're gonna go back and watch it anyway. So, but anyway, my point is, I feel like that's why AEW was a little hesitant about doing video packages like this. But as long as you kind of ration them and only do them when needed and completely necessary, mm-hmm. I think you're fine. It's just part of episodic storytelling. Now, when Yuta came out to uh, try and bring MJF out, he was, you know, giving an impassioned speech about, you know, not having an issue with, you know, MJF attacking him, but rather attacking Shivani instead. Uh, it, it was an OK promo. Uh, I I think, you know, I'm glad that AEW is at least giving him a chance to try and go out there and talk. But at the same time, when he was talking, there was nothing about that that felt intimidating <laughs> to me until we got to the later parts. Be nice, Christian. Um, I'm glad that he got back on the horse again after kind of mm-hmm. falling off of it last week. Um, last week was a bit of a mini disaster. Uh, I don't know why they put him in that situation, though. Um, this week could have also been a mini disaster, but I felt like he handled himself well. And I am, I'm sure part of it was that they knew that he had the safety net of, you know, Philadelphia being his home crowd. Um, so that was probably why they're like, they thought they were safe um, to put him out there again, you know, on the mic against MJF. <laughs> But once again, I did feel like they gave him a little too much time and a little too much to say. Like, uh-huh. keep it short. You know, he's still getting kind of comfortable on the mic, you could tell. Um, and then you have him going against one of the best talkers in the business right now. So, you know, it, it, MJF is going to make him look bad without a second thought you know it doesn't take much for mjf to cut someone down 
And you don't want that to end up hurting your new baby face, you know, right off the bat. And Yuta is fairly new to being in the spotlight. Um, so it just, it, it feels like risky business for no good reason. Like I like the idea of the program itself, but it's just kind of like the execution's been a little lackluster. Um, but at the end of the night, I felt like we got to where we needed to go in the mm. long run. It just feels like, I don't know, it feels like they're playing with fire and there's no reason to, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I mean, and part of it, once again, might have been like, oh, well, we've got a lot of time here. We need you to, you know, you know, expand this segment a little. Um, but yeah, Yuta doesn't need to be out in the middle of the ring, you know, talking to Philadelphia, trying to cut down, you know, MJF and like go through like a PowerPoint session of everything MJF is going to say in his promo just uh. to have MJF come out and literally say everything that Yuta just said in his promo that he was going to do and just not give a shit. Like it just, I don't know. It, it really didn't make much sense, but I felt like overall, like he handled himself a lot better. Like the execution was better than last week where at last week, it just kind of made him look like a buffoon until like he jumped to the defense of Tony Schiavone. Um, so, but yeah, no, it, it just, I don't know. I don't know why Tony is putting Yuta into these situations <laughs> because the crowd will eventually turn on you. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's all about what you did, you know, what have you done for me lately? So you don't want to put your new baby face in that situation. It just, it, I don't know. It, it feels like risky business. At least it led to a better moment for him later on with. MJF. Yes. No, I agree. I agree. But it, once again, it could have been a disaster. Uh it could have been a disaster because i was i mean they're in philadelphia philadelphia will boo anyone i mean they booed santa claus Uh for crying out loud so (laughs) (laughs) even though yuda's the hometown boy don't think that they won't turn on him but either way the uh segment ends with them setting up a match for next week uh with mjf going up against yuda uh uh his uh cronies came out again to help yes him. yes this is the second week in the row uh, in a row that the firm came out uh this time in the form of the gun club so i was kind of half expecting ftr to come out and like chase them away mm. since last week they seemed like to be starting a program between the two teams uh but that didn't happen but i don't know if ftr just wasn't there uh you know who knows I'm not sure where FTR is, you know, holding residency right now. So I they, feel like they are from Florida. But it I'm not would 100%. make sense since they mm-hmm. were such a big part of NXT for, you know, a long yeah. period. So I could see them being residents of Florida. So maybe, you know, maybe that's why they went there. But I could easily see this hitting trios oh. matches between the two yeah, of them. Absolutely. But I will say, like, I'm enjoying how they're using the firm and MJF so far. Um, I like the fact that they're there, you know, they're not there until they're there, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, like they're not going to be taking like team photos together or anything like that. But like at a drop of a dime, if MJF is in trouble of any sort, you know, the firm could be right around the corner. Uh, before our next match, we got a quick promo for Darby Allen versus Jay Lethal coming next week on Dynamite. Sure. 
just feels like a match for match sake, but, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure it'll be a good match. Uh, Darby Allen stating that he wants to, you know, fight to kind of go after the titles in the future was interesting. I'm, I totally missed that somehow, Christian. I might have uh, run upstairs to uh, take some food out of the microwave. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, I did see the match graphic, though. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder what title will be going after. Maybe the All-Atlantic, you think? I'm not I sure. I can't imagine but... him going up against Wardlow. No, but could he want to go after the world title eventually? Or the trios title. He could. They could do a trios team with him and Sting and, you know, mm-hmm. a wrestler to be named later. Perhaps Great Muda. No. <laughs> <laughs> after seeing how long it took him to get to the ring, I think we're done. <laughs> Anyway, up next we have John Moxley defeating Juice Robinson in an AEW Eliminator World Championship match. One, I'm glad someone like jumped Moxley on the way to the ring finally. <laughs> I mean, that's what he gets for taking 10 minutes to like, you know, hit the ring finally. Like, I'm tired of this like Sandman like entrance. Um, I, I could really do without that. Like, it's fine if he wants to go through the crowd. I get it. But like, it doesn't need to take fucking 10 minutes to get there. Well, yeah, he doesn't need to go one way and then go back the and other way. Kind of go time. up the stands and then come down uh-huh. and then go up <laughs> another set of stands. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's not doing it for me. It's like just get to the fucking ring already. But once again, like I said before, I love the fact that Moxley is a fighting champion and that you know he's there week after week defending that belt or at least uh, you know defending the opportunity to get an opportunity for that belt. Uh, if that makes any sense. But uh, yeah, I could I could really do without these eliminator matches. I, I I think they're stupid. Like I hate the fact that you have to beat the champion to get a championship yeah. match. That just seems dumb to me. But whatever. I mean, WWE's been and doing it for it years, has... so I, I just mm-hmm. don't like the fact that you know Tony's getting ideas from WWE. You know, like their worst ideas. So, um, but it is what it is. And it feels like it's always set up for, you know, Moxley just to win. It's like putting stakes, you know, to a match that doesn't really have any stakes. Like, it's okay just to have a match for match sake, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually it does have to, to work if they keep doing these matches. I just don't know. Just like, make him, make Moxley crazy and just make him just constantly putting the title of the line. I'm fine with that. You know, <laughs> I mean, like have him come out and say, fuck the rankings. I don't give a shit. I want to defend my title every fucking week and have him out there defending the title. I mean, I would much rather have that because it just, it feels so illogical. The fact that you have to beat the champion to get the championship match. Right. Uh-huh. Like, like no one buys that, like, Juice Robinson's going to beat Moxley anyway. So why not just have the championship on the line anyway, you know, regardless. So, I mean, if you want stakes in the match, just make it a title match. It just feels overcomplicated for no, you know, good reason. Um, you know, and they're, they're barely even doing the rankings anymore. I, I still mm-hmm. don't think they've updated on their web page and that it's almost a month at this point. Oh, don't forget that MJF was in the booth the entire time. This time, not as seen as often as last week. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, and hopefully this time was more about setting up the match between him and Yuta. Uh, I, I mm. did like everything that happened with MJF in the booth with Yuta like showing up behind him and everything like that. And the big brawl. Um, I thought that was smart. It kind of like gets mjf away from the firm um but 
if they do this every time Moxley's out there wrestling with MJF, like, you know, sitting in the booth, I just, I don't know. Like, one, it doesn't add suspense to me at all in the match because it feels like, well, I know he's all the way up there. So I'm not buying him, like, running down and cashing in. Like, it just mm. makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> so it doesn't add that anticipation, you know, I, I which I think is what they're going for with him being up there so hopefully after this like they kind of stay away from that like fine you know have mgf drop a line about you never know when i'm going to cash in or whatever i don't care about that but like having him in the booth like every time moxley defends the belt just i I don't know it it really i feel like it takes away from the match happening in the ring you know and it's going to get old after you know a certain point unless they do actually pay it off, which I don't think that's going to happen. Like <laughs> it's still way too no. far of a distance for him to like get to Moxley and be a surprise. I, I mean, I, I'm assuming they're just going for the visual of it yeah. all. Like uh, one week he's not going to be up there, and it's supposed to be like, oh, is he going to you know show up? And then he might not actually cash in. Yeah. I mean, you know that I'm week. glad this time they weren't cutting away to him like incessantly. Um, uh-huh. but I don't know. It just does nothing for me. Oh, I was also surprised that, um, Paige came out. Uh, I, I know he won the battle Royal, but I wasn't expecting him to be like aggressive about getting the title. No, you I'm, know? I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he was though, because I feel like he's been kind of mm-hmm. lost in the shuffle lately. Uh, especially after everything that happened with, you know, the elite, uh, I'm guessing that's where his storyline was headed. So uh, they need to do something with him. And why not have him be one of the, you know, guys that Moxley has to face off against? Uh, you know, thankfully, they put him in the battle royal this time around for number one contendership. I mean, this was like the exact opposite of the last battle royal they had for, you know, the title shot mm-hmm. where like they seem to have everyone in the company. But Paige. this time it was like no one was in this battle royal, but Paige. So you knew exactly who was going to win this one. But it is what it is. I'm glad that he's back in the title scene and I'm looking forward to the match between, you know, him and Moxley. Uh, but once again, you know, MJF was out there teasing, possibly, you know, interfering in that match. Uh, I, I still don't think that's going to happen. I feel like he's going to save the cash in for full gear, but maybe I'm wrong. Before the main event later on tonight, we had a video package, you know, featuring Bandito and all of his accomplishments as the you know champion in Ring of Honor. Thought this was a good video package, but after watching this, I was terrified that Tony was going to sign him. And not that, like, he's not <laughs> someone you'd want on the roster, but Jesus Christ, Tony, please stop. There's just too many people right now. You can't service all these people <laughs> and make them happy. So, um, I mean, unless he's going to be on yes, Ring of Honor whenever like, they have their maybe own show. A, but... like an ROH exclusive deal, but I feel mm-hmm. like that's not going to happen until Ring of Honor, like, actually gets a TV deal. So, like, if there's a way to keep him in the wings, like, you know, waiting, fine, sign him. But otherwise, just don't, you know, have that pen touched paper, you know, anytime soon for anyone. <laughs> like, after Paige, like, that's, that's, we're good. Speaking of Soraya, uh, she came out after a video package, you know, recapping what happened last week. Um, she kind of, you know, stated that 
she's revitalizing the revolution right here in AEW um, and brought out all the faces, uh, kind of tried to like reintroduce them Which to the was crowd weird. for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I started to cringe when I thought she was going to like introduce all these women who've been wrestling for the last like year or two, you know, to, uh. the, to the audience. So it's like, we know who these people are, Paige, right? It's like, sure. Um, I thought her promo was okay uh, to start things out, um, but it, with the whole revolution line, it's like it's one of those things where it feels like you're admitting that there's a problem, and if you're not going to do anything to solve it, then shut up, right? And I'm not talking uh-huh. about Paige. I'm talking about Tony Khan. Um, yes. <laughs> don't shine a spotlight on it, you know? I hope it means something, and I hope this leads to, you know, the women being properly featured on Dynamite and Rampage every week. Uh, but it's a case of, I'll believe it when I see it. So, well, her answer for like, or Tony's answer for, you know, starting the revolution was to have a lumberjack match just so that we have everyone on television in which one segment. just feels like a cheat code. Right. Just to get all the women on the screen (laughs) at the same time. I was like, how about we just have multiple matches on Dynamite and Rampage? But I'm not going to go down Mm -hmm. this rabbit hole again. (laughs) Since I pretty much do it every week. Um, I thought the crowd was really into Saray when she first came out. But then she did eventually lose them. Um, You know, I I think maybe it was just the, the clunkiness of the segment. There was just too many mm-hmm. moving parts, um, which, I mean, you can't blame her. You got to blame Tony once again. So, um, but I don't know. Maybe they're just stretching for time because of the situation. Uh, it is what it is. But yeah, no, I wouldn't have had this be her first outing, though. You know, I would have kept it simple. Do an introduction. State your business. Why you're here. Like at this point, we don't even know if she's wrestling. Right. Like she hasn't come out and said, I'm wrestling. So it's a little weird. Although like Taz on commentary feels like he keeps on like hinting at her, implying that she's going to wrestle because he said something like, oh, she hasn't had her first match here yet. Um, mm-hmm. But it was like, OK, well, are you going to make that announcement? Because that's a pretty big deal. And I think that's what everyone's kind of waiting for. You know, after the segment, it felt like she was kind of playing commissioner, right? Like she was all of a sudden like the women's commissioner, which was kind of yeah, taking over for right? Madison. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> Madison's what the women's coach. She's not actually the commissioner, so sure. But like, it just felt it, it felt like the role she left on SmackDown years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It was it was a little weird, but you could also tell that she was nervous too. So that didn't really help the situation. And I mean, she's been on the bench for like two or three years at this point. So I think she just has some rust to kind of shake off uh, when it comes to like being on the mic again. So I'm sure she'll, you know, get there and be fine. I mean, she's she's a game changer. Like if she is healthy and she can wrestle, it's a pretty big deal that AEW has gotten her, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. But once again, that's if she can wrestle. Right. (laughs) So um, we'll see. Uh the crowd, though, like, I was surprised by the response Tony Storm got. Um, they oh, were, yeah. I mean, they were not happy to see her, and they started to boo her right away. I think Paige said something about uh, 
her being like the best women's champion they've had or something. And that totally yeah, turned the crowd on her. I was like, well, that didn't do her any favors. <laughs> I don't know why, though. Like, why well, they would be so against that statement. I guess, but don't put her on that in that spot. You know? Like, oh, mm. she's the best women's champion you've had. Like, she's had two matches. Right? You know, you know, defending that title. So, does that yeah. make sense to say? Um, and then if, like, people are big, like, Britt Baker fans, it's like, well, no, fuck you, or Thunder Rosa fans. So like don't ha don't compare her to other people. Just have her, you know, be her. So um, it I think it was just a, a poor like choice of words. But also could be the fact that a lot of people wanted to see Jamie Hader win that title. Oh yeah. So mm -hmm. that could have been a big factor too. Damon, did you know Brit rhymes with shit? Yes, because I am a giant second grader. So. Um. <laughs> 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 uh, so AEW, they're really like censoring everything now. Because yes. I was like, what is going on with the audio? And then I realized, oh, they're censoring the crowd chanting, or at least trying to. Um, but like I don't know if you had this issue, but like it felt for me like all night long, like the audio was like dipping in and out. Um, and I was like, I know philadelphia can be a rowdy crowd but i can't imagine them just like chanting swears like throughout the entire show uh, so it just felt like they're having a lot of like technical issues for some reason and at this point after three years it's like will you fucking iron this shit out because it's it's getting to the <laughs> point where it's like oh no this isn't just growing pains this is just bush league shit right it's like i mean tony has tons of money so there's no reason why he can't hire like the best people for the job um exactly it's a little ridiculous at this point uh what were your thoughts on the overall match between storm and deeb i thought it was good um i wish they had more time uh holy mm. fucking pile drivers but <laughs> yes <laughs> we got two nasty ones um i don't know man like i love that avalanche pile driver but it fucking scares the shit out of me so um but i'm i like the fact that it's in storm's arsenal uh, you know, I, I don't know about that always being her finisher, though. Like, I'm I'm worried that, you know, half of the women's division is going to end up being on the injury list. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, it was it, it was it was a good match. Um, I will say at the end, I was a little disappointed because it felt like um, this is a, kind of a one and done deal for Deeb. Um, I was kind of hoping that Storm and Deeb would have like a program together, but that doesn't seem to be where they're headed. But with that being said, I have no clue where they're going. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's going to be Hater. I don't know if it's going to be Brit. I do feel like it's too soon for Brit to be back in the title picture. Uh, but I don't know what direction you go in. If Hater goes for that title, I feel like she has to win, right? Or I feel like she's getting almost acclaimed level. Or like, Christian, you have Brit do something once again that costs Hater the belt. And that's when you have her finally turn on bread and you could start that program it would be good a good way to do that and that's why that's a good way to stretch it out i don't know who tony goes up though again well next. i mean you could have literally the next match be hater versus you know tony and then you mm. know you kind of kick off the braided hater feud and then you have tony move on now yes where she goes after that i have no clue but i mean at least you have the next like couple weeks booked I know that they have like a night of champions coming up um, and they're combining it with rampage. 
I believe that's in October. And then they also have that Tuesday night rampage um, uh, show uh, in October. So uh, and it feels like they're trying to like really like, you know, book that show deep. So I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. if that match doesn't happen on either one of those nights, if it is going to happen. Up next, we had a backstage segment with uh, the acclaimed and Billy Gunn, who said on next week's Dynamite, it's National Scissoring Day. Uh, <laughs> of course, Keith Lee would show up, uh, you know, kind of get in Billy Gunn's face for causing them the match and pretty much told them that they got carried. Yeah, um, you know, and I, I didn't think they were going to go this direction, but I'm, I'm guessing we're going to get the rubber match here. Uh, between uh, the acclaimed and uh, Swerve to Our Glory, which I'm fine with. Uh, I would think that we would see, you know, the breakup, though, for Swerve to Our Glory during this match, because um, mm-hmm. that does feel like where they're headed. Um, but I'm all for these guys having a rubber match. They have great chemistry together. We also saw that Butcher and Blade were having an argument with the, you know, private party in the back. Um, Andrade uh, had to come down and calm them all, even though I thought Andrade had ditched them. Uh, and I thought for some reason he cut ties and he was just running with Roosh now, but apparently not. This whole ragtag faction is still happening on AEW. Um it looks like they're just trying to clean up the story, maybe. Uh, Private Party had a moment with Matt Hardy in the uh, ring uh, during the Battle Royal on Friday. Uh, so it looks like they're going to reunite. Um, and, I don't know, break off from Andrade, which I didn't even realize they were still like, uh-huh. <laughs> with. But whatever. I mean, I guess Andrade's been trying to buy Ten's contract recently uh from the dark order so maybe i don't know maybe they're choosing to keep andrade with uh butcher and blade so he can feud with the dark order i'm guessing i just i just don't want to see it i'll be honest like i'm just over (laughs) this like let andrade go like Get him away from the shitty storyline and let him go after a title. Yeah, because I, I, I feel like the last few weeks have only been like backstage segments for Andrade at this yeah, point. Yeah, I'm wondering if he's injured or something. You know, hmm. I mean, AEW does not like to disco- disclose like injuries for some reason. So I'm wondering if that's the case. Because we found out what recently with the whole thing with uh, Malachi Black, that Black was having serious like back issues. It was on the shelf for a long time and we had no clue (laughs) absolutely no clue in fact i don't even remember him being off camera for that long of a period of time so but i guess he wasn't wrestling and that's why i feel like when you keep secrets like that you know and don't like disclose injuries you're putting heat on the company because like i'm sure during those weeks where you know black wasn't in the ring wrestling we were probably bitching about them misusing you know, Malachi. So Mm -hmm. it's weird not to disclose those injuries. I'm not sure what the philosophy is around that because in every other sport, like there's an injury report every fucking week (laughs) telling you who's hurt and who's out. Cause every time I go on like Twitter or anything, I see people complaining like, where's this wrestler? Why aren't they using them? And it's like, well, if they're just out and we had no idea, just say they're, they're injured right now. Right. Like, I mean, have the have the commentary team mention it briefly or something, you know, or shoot an angle around it, you know, you know, added to storyline. I don't know. It's weird. 
Up next, we had a quick match with Ricky Starts defeating um, Eli Esam. Sure. I mean, the match took as long <laughs> as you trying to say his name. So that's, yes. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> this was probably a case of like, we don't want Ricky to lose momentum. Let's put him out there quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a great match with Hobbs uh, in the main event of Rampage. Uh, if you haven't had a chance, definitely go check that out. Um, but it, it feels like that storyline is still going to continue, uh, and I'm all for it. So it feels like maybe this was a case of Hobbs not being there, and I'm just totally speculating. But once again, like I know it was a squash match, but you've got tons of wrestlers on Dark every week that probably would have been more than willing to eat the pinfall for Ricky Starks. Like, why bring in some like local guy? You know, like you know, have one of those you know wrestlers who, you know, don't get much TV time out there, you know, taking the pin. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't be this scared to, like, you know, have people lose on your roster. And last but not least, we had Chris Jericho defeating Bandito to retain the ROH world title. I really liked this match. This was one hell of a match. I was worried about this being kind of a clash of styles. Uh, Bandito is just amazing in the ring, though. And Jericho's just mm-hmm. on a tear right now. This dude is 51 years old. Yes. Christian, <laughs> I thought I fucking sprained my ankle sitting down to record the show today. <laughs> and I'm in my 40s. And this motherfucker out here, he's taking fucking moonsault body slams off the top rope. I don't uh-huh. even know what the hell to call that. Uh, but, I mean, my hat is off to Jericho. Like, I know he has a lot of fucking naysayers out there. But, like, you can't fucking discredit what this guy's been doing this year. I mean, it's it's incredibly impressive. And knock on wood, no, like, serious injuries, well, like, in a totally while just or fucking recently. jinxed him, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, you're right. Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, look at who he's wrestling. Like, they're carrying him. It's like, no, man. It takes fucking two no. to tango. And he's out there holding his fucking own against some of the greatest in the business right now. So, I mean, get fucked. Jericho is having the run of a lifetime. Like, people uh, need to give him his credit. I feel like we're one of the first people to bring it up either way. If, like, someone was clearly carrying the other Yo, person in a match. Like, yes, we're not. Yes. And I'll be honest. Like, last year, I, it did feel like he lost a step or two. But, like, you know, since he lost all that weight and he's come back um, from his illness, like, he's just been on fire, you know? And he's been a highlight on the show week after week. So, I mean, goddamn, like, I mean, he's doing a lot for this company right now. So I think it's one of those cases where people aren't going to realize how much, like, you know, his run has really mattered for AEW until he's gone. You know, they're just Mm -hmm. taking him for granted, you know, right now because, you know, he's been featured for, you know, the last three years of the company since the beginning of the company. But like I said, I mean, great, intense match. Um lots of cool moves back and forth bandito mm-hmm. i don't know if bandito was trying to get a job but i mean this is not gonna hurt his case <laughs> um i hate his fucking mask with like every fiber of my being i'm not gonna <laughs> lie like i was like why would you choose a match where you can't see like your mouth whatsoever like i mean you're you're completely losing your ability to like emote any kind of emotions or feeling he does it with his sure. arms <laughs> 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 but i mean he's he's still amazing regardless 
So, um, like I said, like, I could see why Tony would want to sign him and maybe he has some kind of deal in place. I just hope it's more of a like ROH, like exclusive contract because, and there's, it's getting crowded in that locker room right now. So, I mean, even with like, you know, your, your bigger names being suspended and like, you've got some names still on the injury list but anyway, yeah, this match kept everyone on the edge of their seats. I mean, there was a lot of great near falls and everything to the point where I started to question whether or not Bandito was going to walk away this with this title. Um, like, you know, my wrestling brain told me, no, that doesn't make any sense. Jericho just won it. But I mean, the wrestling was so good in the ring that, you know, it, it did have you on the edge of your seat. Um but yeah, I, I after the match we had Jericho uh, attacking the ring announcer for ROH uh-huh. and declaring like like he's basically the enemy of anyone who's associated with ROH. I love that shit. I once again, this is Jericho being the ultimate like ROH villain right now, um, and this is just a great storyline to really draw interest for ROH, who up to this point like. Who are we kidding? Like, Tony's just been kind of, like, throwing, like, you know, Ring of Honor wrestlers and, you know, titles on, you know, Dynamite and Rampage with no rhyme or reason. This gives them a strong enough storyline to kind of, like, justify their existence. So, I'm all for this, you know. So, kind of set up, like, facing off against other former ROH champions, saying that he was going to beat them all. Um, that, Mm. you know, opens up, you know, a a whole litany of possibilities. I mean, you've got names like, you know, Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe on this roster. And one thing that Jericho has been doing lately on Rampage during commentary during Joe's matches, he has been mentioning how, like, there was a period of time where Samoa Joe was my favorite wrestler. (laughs) He's been really like putting (laughs) over Joe. So I'm guessing mm. that was his way of like planting seeds for a possible angle down the line, uh, which I'm sure we're going to see come into fruition, you know, in the near future. But for now, we do know that Brian Danielson is up next for that world title. Do you think the title match between Danielson and Jericho is going to be used as the catalyst for uh, Garcia to finally make his decision? Or do you think that's going to come even before that at the tag match? I definitely don't think it's happening at the tag match. Uh, I think there's a possibility for it to happen during their little title match, but I'm not 100%. Because I, I, I still i am in the belief that Garcia is going to just ditch both sides by the end of this, but I don't know how long yeah, they're going to drag I mean, it out I, for. I, but I'm saying, like, could you see that happen at that during that match? I could. I could see it happening, but I'm not. Because I feel like if like Garcia is not going to just ditch both sides and walk away. Like, I feel like he's Mm. going to face Jericho if he does choose to walk away from JAS. But what I'm saying is I don't think it necessarily has to be either or like, you know, just because, you know, he's leaving JAS. It doesn't mean that he's going to join, you know, the combat club, but it does mean that he's most likely going to have a program with Jericho because Jericho is not going to let him just walk away from the group, you know? So I could see it being a case of, you know, Garcia challenging Jericho for that belt and maybe at like the next ROH pay-per-view. I mean, that's definitely going to sell tickets for sure. Now, if they can only get a TV deal. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> but who knows? I mean, maybe this is what Tony feels like he needs to do to kind of like land that deal. I mean, we've seen it before with AEW. I mean, Jericho's a big enough name to, you know, peak interest. So I could definitely understand why Tony Khan would want Jericho to have that belt right now if he's still trying to work out some kind of deal. But anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, make sure to join us next week as we talk some more AW Dynamite. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, that does it for this week. Make sure to join us next time as we keep the horror month countdowns coming. Next week, it's going to be the 80s. And of course, we'll still have breakdowns for Andor, She-Hulk, House of the Dragon, and AEW. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was the Amazing Nerd Show.